we're in a series that we're calling Be the Countercultural Church. And the reason for the series is we don't want our attitudes and actions to reflect the attitudes and actions of our culture. We want our attitudes and actions to reflect the values and the priorities of the gospel. And we're using kind of 1 Corinthians as our um, source to get most of our information. Now, if you've been reading through or if you've read through 1 Corinthians or if you've been listening to the messages as we go, you probably have had to scratch your head a couple of times when we come to some passages. For example, what's all that about head covering? Not because the sun's out, not because it's raining. Something about cover your head when you pray, when you don't pray. Like, what's up with that? How about meat sacrifice to idols? Is that like a burning issue in your life, whether you should eat this kind of meat or that kind of meat? Lots of issues kind of show up and we wonder what's going on. Do you remember the one about people getting drunk at church? That hasn't been a problem here at Calvary Church, but lots of difficulties. Just scratch your head and say, what in the world's going on? But then there are other passages in 1 Corinthians that go down easy. And we kind of say, ah, that's what the Bible's supposed to be. Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of those passages. But just to show you, this is not an isolated idea or kind of a tangential theme, but the priority, I thought we'd do a little bit of investigation around the Bible before we land on our passage. You know, one day, uh, Jesus was asked by, by some people, how do you live a good life? And Jesus responded by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the big theme. A little while later, Jesus teaching his disciples how to live this life he wants them to live, how to continue what he started. He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. And then to kind of show them the mark by which the world will know that they're his followers, he says, by this, everyone will know that you're following me, that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Now, John, one of those disciples, he goes on to write a few letters in the, in the Bible, and here's what he wrote about love. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Well, I guess Peter didn't get the memo on that, because when Peter wrote, here's what he wrote. Above all else, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul, who became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection, he says, now these three, faith, hope, and love, remain, but love is the greatest of the three. So it seems this idea of love isn't the fine print, it's not on the back burner. It's the bold print. And even though the Bible's an ancient book and it can be complicated and there can be lots of discussions about what this means and what that means, it's pretty easy as you read through the scripture to say, love is the priority. We are in the business of love. In fact, in the beginning of the passage that we're gonna read, you're gonna see that you can have everything else, but if you don't have love, you actually wind up with nothing. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, your iPad, and you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't have one of those things, you can just listen as I read Paul giving the most lengthy description of love in the entire Bible. I'll begin with the last verse of chapter 12, and I'll read through verse 8 of chapter 13. So Paul writes, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, 
but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. How many of you have ever heard those words or a section of that passage read at a wedding? Raise your hand. Yeah, we uh, like to read those words. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that those words or a section there are read at more weddings than any other passage, whether it's from the Bible or from anything else. Because we come together and we want this couple to kind of launch that marriage on a firm foundation. And so we like to talk about love. Love's being pictured. We talk about love as being the foundation. But here's the really weird thing. That's not the context in which those words first appeared. You can check this out later, but take my word for it for now. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now we looked at some of that a few weeks ago, but if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 12, you just read through, you'll discover that that passage is about division, conflict, ego, disruption, quarreling, backbiting, lots of problems. There are messy, difficult people and situations in chapter 12. It is a messy, difficult, quarreling bunch. Chapter 14, the chapter after this section, is about messy, difficult, quarreling, backbiting, egotistical people. Well, do you think Paul's saying, you know, I really should write something that, you know, Christians can read at weddings. So I'll just kind of wedge it right in here in the middle of all this conflict stuff. No. Well, why in the world does 1 Corinthians 13 show up between 12 and 14? The context is in the middle of division and disruption. The context is conflict and backbiting, quarreling. And so Paul's trying to say, guys, the way we get over this conflict is by thinking about love and how we can exhibit those qualities. So I always find it a little strange that some of those words are read at a wedding because essentially the couple getting married they are the least people in the world that need to hear this passage right then. It's written to a bunch of messy, quarreling, difficult people surrounded by messy, difficult, quarreling people in a messy, quarreling, difficult church. That's the context that Paul writes. Well, that's important to keep in mind because my guess is uh, you live with some messy, difficult people and sometimes the circumstance isn't great. It doesn't take uh, too much introspection to realize that you're a messy, difficult person and your life isn't the way it really should be. Well, we need to hear in the middle of that context of quarreling and difficulty and messiness, this section about love. And so Paul doesn't just wedge it in to give us something to read at weddings. He very strategically places it in the context of conflict because that's how conflict 
can be cured and conflict can be solved. Well, Paul begins with two positive statements, and those are the two that we're going to look at today. Love is patient, love is kind. Well, the first one, love is patient. Here's a little assignment. Just make sure you stay awake. Think of one word, just one word, that in your opinion best describes Jesus. One word, a synonym for Jesus. Okay, you got it in your head? Uh, My guess is some of you think Lord. Some of you think love. After all, we just read that passage. Some of you may think holy, king, savior, right? All those, and all those words are accurate. They're great. I'm glad that you came up with those words. Well, one day, uh, that question was asked to a group of people, and Dallas Willard was one of the people the question was asked to. And Dallas's answer was one that I had never heard of, never thought of, and even today, I kind of scratch my head like one of those weird passages. Here's what Dallas said. Well, the one word I think of that describes Jesus better than all other words is the word relaxed. Did that word come to your mind, relaxed? Jesus is relaxed. But if you think about it, that's a pretty good description of Jesus. For example, Jesus in that Jewish context, you know, becomes a man, enters manhood when he's about 12. He's helping his father, you know, kind of in the carpentry shop. And eventually he begins to sense the weight of the world is on his shoulders, right? Then he's 15, 18, 20, 22, 25, 29. He's growing. Does he become impatient? Is he kind of running around, running here, running there, figuring, hey, I've got to save the world. I got to hurry up. I got to get to the cross. I've got, I got to get my disciples. I need to follow me. I need to get going with this thing. No. In fact, our best guess is day after day from he's 12, 15, 19, 21, 23, 25, 27, 29. He's hammering nails, selling boards, living in the moment. He's relaxed. How about he shows up to get baptized with John the Baptist? Big inauguration, right? A voice booms from heaven. This is my son whom I love, right? And everything. What does Jesus then do? He goes into the desert for 40 days kind of checks out. I don't know about you. I would sense, hey, I got this big launching pad here. I better get going. I better get launching my ministry. After all, this launching pad should propel me into ministry. How many times as you're reading through the Gospels do you discover Jesus goes away from the crowd to be alone and to pray? He chooses his disciples and, you know, they're kind of a slow bunch, don't you think? but he hangs in there with them. He never once threatens to cut any of them. Like he doesn't say, you know, if you goof off one more time, you're out of here. He doesn't pull the starters the way, well, we're not talking about the Phillies bullpen today. He never threatens to get rid of them. They're in a storm on the lake. What's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. Uh, beyond, how many of you like to take a nap? When you nap, you are continuing what Jesus started. Uh, right? I mean, Jesus took a nap in the middle of a storm. His disciples are frantic. He's sleeping in the boat. Jesus is relaxed. Another way to say, he's in the moment. He's not thinking of the next moment. He's not trying to get out of this situation to get to the next one. He's relaxed. He's trusting the timing of his father. He knows that things are happening according to plan. I challenge you, you read through the Gospels and you'll discover Dallas Willard's answers are pretty good. Jesus is relaxed. He's never in a hurry. 
He walks by foot from town to town. We don't read that he, uh, you know, commandeered horses so he could get there faster. He takes his time, always has time for people, never rushes away from people. He's relaxed. He's patient. I don't know about you, but we live in a culture that does not prize patience. So we live in a culture of a fast food. We live in a culture of speed dating. We live in a culture in which you can't even type out all the letters in a word when you're texting someone, so you have to abbreviate everything to make it faster. Here's an interesting thing. I believe Thomas Edison kind of, you know, invented the light bulb or whatever in like 1879. And all of a sudden, it didn't have to get dark after that. Do you realize the average American American slept 11 hours a day before Thomas Edison. So whenever you read those uh, crazy things about, you know, these spiritual giants arising at four o'clock in the morning, they went to bed at 6.30. So 11, my guess is not one of you here sleeps 11 hours a day. Jesus slept 11 hours a day. He was before Thomas Edison. I don't know about you. The only way we can sleep 11 hours a day, the only day we can live in the moment, the only way we can live a relaxed life is if we trust that God's timing's right and we can be still and know that he is God. As I said, patience is not a quality that we prize. And yet, whenever um, you know, kind of a survey is taken over you know, concerning spiritual fruit, patience is always the number one fruit that people listening said they would like more of. But here's the interesting thing. Our culture does not prize patience. In fact, if people are too patient, we say they're lazy. They don't have enough get up and go. We want people that are impatient because somehow that impatience seems to connect to drive and momentum toward the goal. God says, be patient. Describing a definition of love, that's the first thing that Paul says. Love is patient. Jesus was patient. He was relaxed. All right, so here's a little patience assignment for you. Drive the speed limit this week. How about that one? Yeah, a bunch of laughter. That's what I thought. A bunch of laughter. Yeah, that's crazy. You can only drive the speed limit if you're patient. When the light turns green, don't automatically honk your horn at the fool in front of you. When you're leaving your seat, making your way to your car this morning, walk slowly. As you're exiting the parking lot, Don't think of what you'll be doing next. When your spouse is talking to people on the way to the car, don't look at your watch as a way to kind of signal there. Come on, we need to get going here. Be in the moment. Be patient. Trusting God to allow what he wants done to be done in the time that he allows. Be patient. Deliberately take your time this week. Deliberately try to live in the moment. Not in the next moment or in the next week. In the moment. Be relaxed. Our Father knows what He's doing. He controls all things. Be relaxed. Be patient. Now, the next one is um, be kind. They kind of go together. You know, the, the synonym that I like to think of for kindness is beneficial. Being kind, being beneficial means that you're not seeking stuff for yourself, 
you're seeking to benefit someone else, right? That's what kindness is. It's not seeking comfort and ease and something good for you. It's seeking and being part of delivering something good for somebody else. You're living a kind life. You're living a beneficial life. You know, as I was thinking about those two positive attributes about love, and we're going to look at the negative ones next week, right? So this morning, love is. Next week, love is not. So if you want to know what love is not, show up next week. This morning, we're talking about what it is. He said, well, I already know what it is, and I can't do that. I'll come back next week because I, I got that part licked too. Love is kind. You know, David, if you look at the you know, sweep of his life, he lived both of those characteristics pretty well. So, for example, David was anointed king when he was a kid. Saul was already the king. David had numerous opportunities to take Saul out and assume the throne quickly, but David was patient. David was relaxed. David didn't take matters into his own hands, bringing about what he wanted and what he thought God's timing should be. He trusted God's timing. He was patient. Well, eventually Saul's off the scene and David shifts to kindness mode. David, a loving character, right? A man after God's own heart. David comes in and says, is there anyone from Saul's family, anyone from, you know, the old dynasty still alive to whom I can show kindness? And Mephibosheth is mentioned. And if you want to read a real story about kindness, you read 2 Samuel 9. Now think about it. Mephibosheth is a rival to the throne. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Jonathan was the crown prince. Mephibosheth had a rightful claim to the throne. David shows Mephibosheth kindness. He patiently waited to assume the throne and he shows kindness to Mephibosheth, brings him into the fold and has him share his dinner table every day through the rest of his life. David, a pretty good example of patience and kindness. You know, I was thinking, some of you may know this. Do you know what it takes to make a pearl like a pearl you wear on a necklace or a ring? Two things. It takes an irritant and time. An irritant and time. In a sense, it takes kindness and patience. As that irritant goes into the clamshell, the clam secretes some of itself to that irritant. The clam sacrifices some of itself for the irritant. And the irritant, you know, kind of grows and grows. I think it takes like 20 years to make a pearl of any size, which means if a clam lives to be up 40, I don't know how long clams live, but if a clam lives to be 40, it only make two pearls its whole life. If it only lives 25 years, it makes one. Some of them don't make any. So here's my uh, advice to you. Do you have an irritant? You may be sitting next to your irritant. You are surely somebody else's irritant. And if you don't have an irritant, please email the office or call. We have lots of them that we would like to share with you, all right? So if you need an irritant, we can supply one. But you also need time. If the clam doesn't give it time, the pearl cannot develop. If there's no irritant, there will be no pearl. Hmm. Maybe part of the gospel is that God wants all of us to be in the process of cultivating pearls. Irritants, 
as we pour some of ourself in kindness to the benefit of someone else, something else, with patience, that irritant is surrounded and becomes a pearl. Well, I've got a, a kindness assignment for you too. Now, you may need your phone or a piece of paper for this because I don't trust some of your memories. Oh, Charles, I forgot. You need to write this down or put it in your phone. All right, I don't see anybody reaching for power. Here, here's what you have to do. It, it's not real difficult. I want you to think of five people that you regularly come across. It may be someone in your house, somebody in your family. Don't choose all five in your family, though. One or two can be in your family, but choose those that are outside and inside your family. People you come across regularly. Whether it's someone, if you go to Starbucks every day, maybe it's there, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's parents, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker. Five people that you cross paths with regularly may not be face-to-face in this COVID world, but you cross people's paths on Zoom, email, whatever, five people. And then I want you to think of one positive characteristic for each of the, I know you have a long list of negative characteristics, right? Don't write those down. One positive characteristic. You just appreciate that person's sense of humor. I mean, other people may not find them funny, but you find them hilarious. Maybe the person's intelligence. Maybe the person's wisdom. Maybe the person's discipline. Maybe the person's style. Whatever it is, right? Think of something positive for each of the five. Now, don't let the second part cause you to change your people in the first part. List your five people first and don't change them. Well, I don't let you know anything good about it. No, no, write five people and you force yourself to think of something positive about each of them. And sometime before next Sunday morning, share with them the positive characteristic that you thought of. Now, don't say, hey, I had this stupid assignment at church on Sunday to think of a, I couldn't really think of anything, but here's what I think of when I think about you. No, no. Do it sincerely. Do it, don't do it weirded out, right? Because, ah, think of a positive, and in a normal conversation, in an email, that maybe other things are mentioned, a word of appreciation and gratitude. I have the sneaking suspicion that if we would begin to shift our thinking from the negative to the positive by being kind by thinking of how we can be beneficial, how we can build them up rather than tear them down. And if we were to take the bold, courageous step to share that that with them, our attitudes would follow the actions. You know, sometimes we want to wait until we have the feelings in order to do the action. You know, often our feelings are going to follow the action. So force yourself, think of something positive, five people, share it with them through email, better face-to-face, on Zoom, whatever, share it with them this week. And uh, We'll have opportunity to talk about that before the service next week. Now, uh, there is a fatal error that I want to correct before you leave. Here's the fatal error. The fatal error is for us to think that somehow inside of us, we have the source of this patient, kind love. That's a fatal error. You don't have the source of that patient love and kind love inside of you. In fact, We've already discovered you're impatient and self-consumed, not kind and patient. What do we need? We need a love from the outside to invade our hearts and minds so that then we get a little bit of a reservoir from the source of love so that we can then share that patient, kind love. 
you know, a lot of commentators have said uh, over the years, and it certainly rings true. Paul isn't really giving a definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. He's giving a description of love. And as he describes love, he's actually painting a picture of Jesus. You want to learn about patience and living relaxed? You want to learn about kindness and living a beneficial kind of life? Yeah, you read Jesus' life. He was relaxed and he was kind. He lived for our benefit, even though it was not beneficial to him personally. And as we focus on the love and experience the love from the outside that Jesus brings, we then have the source to be patient and kind with others. So the fatal error is thinking you can do this on your own. The gospel correction is only Jesus can do this, but he can invade your life and give you the reservoir to love other people the way he loves you. Well, that's a pretty tall order. You've got a couple of assignments as you leave, live this week, and have some conversations. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. We confess that we, uh, most of the time, ignore the context. We don't like the messy conflict context of chapters 12 and 14. We want to jump into 13 and just bathe in the ah moment. But Paul speaks these words in the context of mess and difficulty, division, conflict, quarreling, ego, pride. So Lord, in the midst of our messy lives, allow this definition to invade our minds, realize how far short we fall, call upon Christ to invade our lives with this love, and then in turn, love others the way he loves us. We pray in his name. Amen.